When you love somebody, you give them your time and attention. That's why it's so important to immerse yourself in studying God's Word. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah continues his series in Nehemiah, 10 Steps to Spiritual Renewal, by considering why the Bible holds the key to re-energizing your faith. To introduce the conclusion of his message, getting back to the book, here's David. Thank you so much for joining us for the Wednesday edition of Turning Point. We are looking at the last half of the book of Nehemiah. We've called this 10 Steps to Spiritual Renewal. Again, the background is Nehemiah came back. They rebuilt the walls. The people got involved again in their worship. But unfortunately, while they were doing all this work to build the walls, they were falling little by little away from their relationship with God. Nehemiah now faced not a building project for the outer walls, but a building project for the inner heart. And he shows us in the last chapters of the book that bears his name how he went about that. Ezra had a part in it. And uh, I'm just so overwhelmed at how relevant this is for all of us. We've been through some tough times. How do we reignite? How do we get started again? Ten steps for spiritual renewal. During this month, we're making available a kind of a side tool for this. It's called the prayer code, 40 scripture prayers every believer should pray. My friend O.S. Hawkins has provided this for us. And um, it's interesting, as you think about all of this, that the only thing the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them was to pray. Like us, they wanted a rich prayer life, but they didn't know where to begin. In the prayer code, you will be taken through 40 different prayer passages. They're practical, well-illustrated, motivational, and encouraging. I want you to have this book. You can get it for a gift of any size during the month of January. Send your gift today and be sure and ask for your copy of the prayer code. Well, here's part two of Getting Back to the Book. Now, the Bible tells us many things about this particular moment in the life of this nation. It tells us how they got themselves ready and what their attitude was. And here is an example for all of us, how we come to the teaching of the Word of God. I've mentioned to you once before that on occasion we misunderstand the process. I had a woman come to me at another church, and, and as she left, she said to me the first time through the line, Pastor, you're preaching better than ever before. Well, I thought that's pretty good. That felt good. I didn't think I was doing anything different. I ever did. She got back in line. I thought, well, I'm going to get this twice on the same day. This is all right. She came back through the line. She said, you know, I want to correct myself. I've been listening better than ever before. Hmm. You know, how we listen to the Word of God, what attitude we have when we come, is altogether critical. Before I talk to you about how Ezra dealt with the Word of God, I want to show you how these people came to hear the Word of God. Notice the descriptive phrases that tell us about them. In verse 1, we are told that all the people came. All the people in the whole city came. They were unified around their desire to hear God's Word. Verse 2 says, the men and the women... And verse 4 tells us that along with all the people, the men and the women, they want to make sure we include the fact that the leaders were there too. And then it says later on that all who could understand were there. All the children who could get the sense out of what was going on, they were there. I'm not sure that we always do right by the compartmentalization of our families so that our children, and a lot of times our young people, are never in the teaching ministry of the Word of God. 
Well, in that day, every single person who was in the community that could understand, they were all there. You could see them as families gathered, and they came together as one. Now, they had a tremendous attitude as they came to hear the Word of God. First of all, it's interesting to note that they're the ones who initiated the service. They're the ones who asked for Ezra to come. It says in verse 1 that they gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe, bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. I mean, I can't imagine the congregation calling the meeting. That happens on the mission field. I promise you that. You go to Romania, they'll stay up all day and all night to hear you preach, and when you're done and dead tired, they'll ask you if you can't go for a little bit longer. That's the way it was in Ecuador. If there's a hunger on the mission field where the Word of God isn't available that we don't have in our culture, these people were hungry. They came. They said, get the book, Ezra. Bring the book. We want to hear it. I'll tell you something. Your attitude when you come to the teaching of the Word of God is all important. How badly do you want to hear it? And the Scripture says they were there as one man. What that means is they were unified. They were committed as one body to the importance and centrality of God's Word. And then notice in verse 3, he read from the open square that was in the water gate from morning until midday before the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They stood in attention. They were hanging on every word. In fact, verse 5 says, And Ezra opened the book in sight of all the people. He was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. And you show me where they sat down. They never did. He stood up at the beginning of the service, began to read the book, and the people were all standing, and they stood for three hours. Can you imagine what it must be like to stand up in front of a group of folks that are so hungry like that? So they ask for the Word of God. They come together as one man. They don't mind being there for three hours. They stand up for the whole service, and the Bible says they give attention to what is being said. I just want to stop for a moment and say your spirit and your attitude as you come to church is the secret to what you get out of it. I love to see people taking notes. That means they're grabbing hold of what's being said, trying to write it down. If you don't come with the right attitude, no matter how good the preacher might be, he can't help you. If you come with the right attitude, no matter how bad he is, you can still gain some benefit. I remember when I was in seminary and we were visiting churches and sometimes we would get discouraged. I don't know how to say this, but seminarians understand it. Seminary ruins a lot of preachers for you. You you go to seminary and you sit there and you study all this time and you're doing exegesis. And sometimes you go to churches where maybe they don't do their homework right or whatever, and maybe they haven't studied, and you sit there and if you're not careful, you get real academic in the way you listen and you go home and your, your heart's cold. I remember one time during our seminary career that Don and I got together and we realized there's something that you can get excited about in every single service if you come with the right spirit. No matter what they're talking about, no matter how good or bad it may be said, if your attitude is right, you're going to be blessed and encouraged. Sometimes we lay too much on the preacher. Preacher can only do so much. It's your spirit and your attitude. You know, we used to have in our culture a thing that Saturday night was a time of preparation. You know, you kind of got yourself together, and you try to get your heart right, and you try to put the cares of the world aside, and there was that little window between the cares of the world. Now we go to gymnasiums and scream our lungs off and get mad at the referees, and it takes us all night to recover so we can come to church the next day. I know all about that. 
But you know, somehow, getting up early in the morning, getting your heart ready, coming to church, praying before you come, God, I, I need to hear from you today. Help me to put the things out of my mind that would keep me from understanding. I want desperately to hear from God today. You come with that spirit, and I promise you, God will meet your need. Now, that's your part in this whole process. Let's read on in verses 4 through 8, and notice how the Word of God is presented. In verse 4, we're told that Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for that purpose. Now, actually, some translations say he stood on the pulpit. That always has given me quite an interesting vision in my mind. I guess you would get attention if you did that, but in the Old Testament, the pulpit is what I'm standing on, not what I'm standing behind. And there were so many people that needed to hear the Word of God that they constructed a platform and elevated Ezra above them so that when he read, they could all see him and they could all hear him. So he presented that from the pulpit. That's the only place in the Bible where the word pulpit is found. Now, the Bible says that he presented God's Word from the pulpit, And then I want you to note that he did it in the sight of all the people. They did not have Bibles as we had today. Ezra didn't get up and say, all right, now everybody take your Schofield Bibles and turn to the Old Testament. I mean, they had no copies of the Scripture. They had one copy. Ezra had it. They had to listen to him read it. And they listened as the scribe read to them from the book. He was above all the people, and we opened the book. They stood up to acknowledge it. Notice, he read to them in a certain way. Watch carefully. It says that he read to them so they could see, he read to them so they could hear, and he read to them distinctly. Now, that's a very important thing for us to do when we read the Word of God. He read it so they could see him, so they could hear it, and so distinctly that they could understand what he was saying. Now, verse 8 is the most important verse in the entire text because it tells us the process that Ezra went through in the teaching of the Word of God. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. Now, my understanding of this passage is that Ezra opened the book, and he would read, and he would read a few lines, and then he would stop and make interpretive comments. I was interested to read this week that Charles Haddon Spurgeon, when he was pastoring in London, was noted for his remarks and interpretations during the Scripture reading. He preached really two messages often, they said. He would come in the first part of the service and stand to read the Scripture, and as he was reading it, he would stop every once in a while and make interpretive comments. And some folks said that an explanatory comment on the passage often transformed the whole service so that in the reading of the Scripture and then in the explaining of some term, Spurgeon would launch out into a mini-sermon that would prepare the hearts of the people for the message he would give on that text when he came to it at a later time. Sometimes we forget that we can do that. We can stop along the way and say a word. Back in the Middle Ages when the Bible was unobtainable by the people, there was the chained Bible in the parish churches of England. And there by a pillar one would read while others listened. Now we have so many copies of the Bible and it's so commonplace to us We've lost the sense of the dignity of the reading of the Word of God. And it's almost impossible to read in unison. We try it every once in a while, but it's really an experience because we have so many different translations that are brought to church. In Nehemiah's day, when Ezra led in the teaching of the Word of God, he stood 
and he read the word, and he distinctly interpreted it. Now, notice what he did. He gave the sense. What is a preacher supposed to do? He's supposed to give the sense of the text. I don't know if you've noticed it, but quite often when I pray before I preach, I pray three things. These things are in my heart when I preach. Number one, God help us to see what it says. Number two, God help us to see what it means. And number three, God help us to understand what it means to us. Observation is seeing what it says. Interpretation is understanding what it means. Application is understanding what it means to us. That's the process we go through when we study the Word of God. First of all, to read what it says, then to understand what it means. And, of course, we have to understand that in the historic culture in which it was written. Because unless you understand it there, you can't extract the real meaning into our life today. So you study and you study history and you bring the text alive and after you've read it and after you've explained it, then you apply it and you say, this is how this works. And so quite often, I know you get tired of it. You think I'm all finished. You think the message is over. I see you close your Bibles and relax. And then I say, now let me share with you three things that this means to us today and I'll give you three applications that come out of that story. I don't know to do that except that's what it seems happened here in the Old Testament. Ezra read the word, and he gave the sense. Now watch. And he helped the people to understand. Literally, the text says he caused them to understand. There's an old adage that drives us all crazy if we're teachers, and it goes like this. You have not taught if they have not learned. Sometimes we think we have taught when we have said our thing. But if they haven't learned, you haven't taught. The teaching process demands change in the lives of those who are the students. So that brings illustration and application very much to the front. I can understand everything that's in this book. I can even understand what it means. But if I don't understand how that can work in my life, if I don't understand how it's going to work in your life so I can share that with you, then this is all just a meaningless experience. As you're going to see in a few moments, when the people were caused to understand the word, it changed their lives. It changed everything about them. And I am absolutely convinced that if you will understand what God says in his word and comprehend it, you cannot go on the same way. You either have to be obedient or disobedient. If you're disobedient, you're out of fellowship. If you're out of fellowship, you can't study the word. And if you can't study the word, it's just that same cycle over and over again. The purpose of the word of God is to change lives. Now, I want you to notice the things that happened as the result of this experience. Please get in your mind's eye this picture. The people have rebuilt the walls. They've had a gigantic project that's over, but they sense something's wrong. They come to Ezra and say, Ezra, would you bring God's law and read it? We really want to hear what God has to say. We want to clean up our act and get things right. It's been a long dearth. There's been no reading of the word. Ezra stands up and he begins to read and he gives the sense of the word and he applies it and these people are all standing there hanging on every word. Notice beginning at verse 6 what happened. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered. Now I want you to notice something. Watch carefully. I went through the text this week and I underlined the verbs that describe the action that took place because Ezra preached to these people. In verse 13, we have the word gathered. I underlined that one. In verse 13, there's another word, the word understood. These are verbs now. 
Verse 14, you'll find the word found. Verse 15, the word published. Verse 16, the word went. Verse 17, the word made booths. Verse 17, sat under them. And verse 18, the word read. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight action verbs that were the result of being exposed to the Word of God. My friend, the Word of God is never read and taught just so people can know more about it. It always is read and taught as a motivation to get going and to do something about what you've heard. So the first thing they did was they worshipped. They lifted up their hands to receive and bowed their faces to be humble, and they worshipped God. I think one of the most meaningful times of worship I can ever remember in this church, I don't know if you remember it, but I'll never forget it, I was preaching through the book of Revelation, and we came to one of the worship passages in the book of Revelation, and at the end of the sermon, we sang two hymns that were written by Don Wurtzen. Worthy is the Lamb, and Thou art worthy. One of them written by him. And we put those together as a medley. We had studied the Word of God about that, and when we got done, we stood up and we worshiped God in response to what we have studied. And it gives me chills to talk about it. It was such a wonderful thing. Sometimes I think it would be great if we just stood up and preached, and then we responded to the Word of God by worship. I've thought about that numerous occasions. There would be more advantages to that than I thought of the first time. The preaching, I could have all the time I wanted, and when I got done, you all could have the rest. (laughs) But they worshiped God. And then verse 9 tells us that after they got done reading the word of God, watch this. And Nehemiah, who was governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the word of the law. They not only worshiped God, but when they heard the word preached, they started to cry. When you hear what God has to say about what's going on in the world and you understand it, how can you sit there and not respond? And people are so afraid today to have any emotion in their response. And sometimes when you hear God's word, it causes you to weep. Uh, You know that I don't have a problem with that. There are many times when I'm reading the word of God and get a hold of a truth and it just grabs hold of me to such a degree that I weep. I love what it says in 1 Samuel 3.1. Listen to this. The child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days. Amen. Hey, when God's word is precious to you, sometimes it just gets a hold of you, and all of a sudden you feel the tears coming down your face. These people had been without the word of God for so long that when God's word was taught, their only response, they worshiped God and they just began to weep. And I'm sure it was tears of joy as well as remorse for all the years that they had neglected the Word of God. And then notice one of the other action words is in verse 10. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Ezra told them to go out and not just to stand there and weep, Not even just to stand there and worship, but to get busy, go out and rejoice and take care of those who don't have any food and help them be involved. Get out and get busy for your God. The ultimate litmus test of the real teaching of the Word of God is what do we do because of it? In verses 13 through 18, the rest of the chapter tell us 
that they instituted a feast which had been long neglected. Notice what it says. Now on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And now watch this. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Some commentators have said that this had not happened. In fact, if you read on to the next verse, you'll discover and that they should announce and proclaim in their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, branches of leafy trees, and make booths as it is written. And the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house or in their courtyards or in the courts of the house of God and in the open square of the water gate and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole congregation of those who had returned from captivity made booths and sat under the booths. Now watch this. For since... The days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. Now watch this. Ezra's reading from the Bible, and he's reading a section of the Old Testament law that tells him about the Feast of the Tabernacles, which was one of the joyous feasts of the Jews. It wasn't a time of self-deprecation, but it was a time of rejoicing. One commentator said it was like an ecclesiastical campout, and maybe that's a good term for it. They camped out in their backyards and on their roofs and, and they just had a time of rejoicing and cooked out and it was a time of reflecting upon God's goodness in their history. But they had not done that as a people since the days of Joshua. And all of a sudden they're reading in the book that's something they should do. If they were today's modern Christians, they would say, oh, that's a cultural thing. You know, that's a cultural thing. I'm sure we're not supposed to do that today. They were just so simple-minded in their obedience. You know, it says here we're supposed to build booths and and the next thing you know, they're out in the forest collecting the stuff and getting it ready and, so they can be obedient. Oh, I love that kind of obedience. Naive obedience. Sometimes naive obedience may get you to do something that maybe you don't have to do because there are themes in progressive revelation. But I love people who are naively obedient to the Word of God. And that's what these folks did. They found written in the book, and they said, if this is what it says, this is what we're going to do. And they did it. You probably remember the old hymn we used to sing when we were growing up, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. It didn't start with Jesus. It started in the Old Testament. It starts at the beginning where obedience is always presented as the highest priority of your walk with God. You need to do what he tells you to do. If it's written in the book, it's clearly presented. There's no debate. You don't need to even pray about it. If God said it, just do it. And you will find that it will bring you to a close walk with him. Interestingly enough, the first step for these people getting back in their right place with God was to just do what God told them to do. And uh, we'll have more about that as we talk tomorrow about getting serious about obedience. Don't forget to ask for your copy of the prayer code when you send your gift to Turning Point during the month of January. It is a beautifully presented book with wonderful instruction and encouragement about prayer. Owens Hawkins has done it again. His code series, some of his code series you probably already have because we've offered them in the past. His code series is just a very simple way to walk with the Lord. He told me on the interview we had on Monday that his goal was not for people um, to get into the Word, his goal was for the Word to get into the people. 
And these little books make that happen. You owe it to yourself to get a copy of the prayer code. You can get it from Turning Point by sending a January gift of any size and simply asking for your copy of the prayer code. I already know it'll be a blessing to you, and you'll want to share it with others. Probably even go to the bookstores and see if you can find an extra copy for a friend. It's our January resource, and it's yours when you send your gift today. Hey, friends, don't forget, uh, we're going to Israel this year. We're running out of time to tell you about it, and uh, I don't want to to wait too much longer to tell you this is really critical. If you want to go with us, March 22nd through April the 1st, we're going to have a great time. We're going to have a great group of people, uh, great music, great worship, teaching of the Word of God. Please come with us. Find out about it at davidjeremiah.org. Our message today originated from Shadow Mountain Community Church and senior pastor, Dr. David Jeremiah. If Turning Point is a blessing in your life, tell us about it by writing to Turning Point for God of Canada, P.O. Box 18098, Delta, B.C., V4L, 2M4. Visiting our website at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or calling 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of O.S. Hawkins' latest book, The Prayer Code. 40 scripture prayers every believer should pray. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James versions. Available in several durable and stylish cover options. Visit davidjeremiah.ca slash radio for details. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue 10 Steps to Spiritual Renewal here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. Have you ever wondered what your legacy will be? The Jeremiah Legacy Society from Turning Point was created for friends of the ministry who feel called to partner with Dr. David Jeremiah to deliver the unchanging Word of God to future generations. We can ensure that the impact we have reaches beyond our days here on earth. Visit our website at davidjeremiahgift.org to learn more about how you can be a part of the Jeremiah Legacy Society. If you've enjoyed today's program with Dr. David Jeremiah, you might be interested in hearing it again at your convenience. Stay connected to Turning Point by visiting our website at davidjeremiah.ca or by downloading our free Canadian mobile app. The app can be found by searching for Turning Point Canada on your smart device app store. Create an account and order digital resources from today's program with easy one-click checkout at davidjeremiah.ca. Turning Point's new 365-day devotional, Every Day with Jesus, is available now. Filled with inspirational readings from Dr. David Jeremiah and paired with Scripture, it will encourage you each day in your walk with God. This popular resource is yours with a gift of any amount in support of this program. And when you give a generous gift of $120 or more, you'll receive four copies so you can share them with others. Learn more at davidjeremiah.ca. That's davidjeremiah.ca. There were many things wrong with hardcore communism in the former Soviet Union, not the least of which was communism's view of the individual. Former Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev said it plainly, Comrades, he said, we must abolish the cult of the individual decisively once and for all. 
In communism, the individual is nothing and the state is everything. But in the kingdom of God, individual uniqueness is highly valued. Psalm 139 says that God knits us together in our mother's womb, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. There is no one on earth like you, thanks to God's love of the individual. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover how God made you unique on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.